call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 18 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, in a slightly unorthodox move, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched three films, the entire filmography of genre director S. Craig Zahler. We go into depth into two of the films, 2014's Bone Tomahawk and 2018's Dragged Across Concrete, while briefly touching on 2017's Brawl in Cell Block 99. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for all three films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. All right. So have you been watching anything else besides the prescribed? I've watched a ton of stuff. I mean, for me, a ton of stuff. Cool. I've actually been watching less stuff. I just had so much fucking stuff to do. Yeah, see, that's the Go difference. On. You got to spend time with people. <laughs> yeah. I got to spend time with uh, characters, with made-up people. Nice. The other day, nice. They're my the other favorite day kind. Uh, I watched Booksmart. Oh, that's really good. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was like one of mm. the funniest films I've seen for ages. I think I kind yeah, of yeah. expected to not like it for some reason, uh, but I thought it was excellent. Because, it was really funny. Because, yeah, yeah, because the sort of people who lauded it. Yeah, possibly. I I was uh, maybe not trusting of their opinion, but I thought it was great. I also yeah, I made no, it is. I made some good progress on my Mike Flanagan's. I watched his first film, Absentia. I haven't seen that. Yeah, Any it's good? very low budget from 2011. It costs like about $70,000. It has a lot of interesting ideas, and you can see how he progressed into becoming like one of the the foremost horror directors working at the moment. Um, it has a lot of interesting ideas, but it is super low budget. Um, I also watched Haunting of Blind Manor. How much of that oh, did you watch? I've watched I got three thing. episodes in. Oh, is it wow. worth it? I think so. I think the important thing about it is that and Flanagan went to great pains to point out that the season is gothic romance. It's not horror. And I think Netflix, I'm fine with that. Netflix made a mistake because they tried to market it as, hey, it's just more of the same as Haunting of Hill House. And I think that's why it got a lot of negative reviews. Well, I would say Haunting a Hill House is quite is kind of romantic-ish in itself, but the episode that it lost me on was uh, spoilers for Bly Manor. The one where it's revealed the relationship that the former babysitter had with the abusive fella. <sighs> okay, you know, yeah, I mean, you I, know what I, I'm talking I, there's about. There's so much more to go in that. Like that, there's so much to it. It just you lost kind of me just because you have to know, watch just the whole had, thing for it to. To they had sense. sex, and all of a sudden, he was a jealous arsehole. Yeah, well, he was Scottish, though, so... Oh, uh, that's true. That's why. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The, the main flaws in it are some of the accents are terrible. I mean, that guy, uh, Oliver Cohen-Jackson, I think his name is, he's English, but for some reason, he's doing an awful Scottish accent when he could have just done some English accent. That would have worked. It's um, very so odd when that happens. The accents are dodgy. Uh, very, very bad. Uh, the like, other... I'm, the other uh, the other flaw is the final few minutes of the last episode are scored by uh, a Cheryl Crow song. <laughs> is it, is it a good Cheryl Crow song? No. <laughs> In my opinion, no. And it just, that's the only thing that soured the end for me. So they don't use all I want to do is have some fun. No, that would have been great. Yeah, I that would have been, been on brilliant. board with that. It was very, it was reminiscent. Have you ever watched uh, Frequency? The Gregory Hobbit film. Oh, okay, that ends no. with a 
um, Springsteen song. And again, it's a similar thing where you're watching it going, really? You 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 play a mental game with names. You just pull something like Gregory Hobbit. <laughs> Gregory Hobbit. You know who Gregory Hobbit is. I do not know who Gregory okay, Hobbit is. Okay, director of uh, Frequency, Hearts War, Fracture. Um, what else did he do? He did all those. He did a lot of uh, thrillers around the early two thousands. I think he's done nowadays. Oh, he did uh, Primal Fear with Norton and Richard Gere. Primal Fear, I have seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Primal Fear is all right. Yeah, well, you should watch um, Frequency. Apart from the cheesy ending, it's it's a solid thriller. I I might whip it out in uh, in one of these coin tosses. You never mm. know. Um, I, would, I would love to watch it. Although yeah. just just the mention of of Hearts War, you've kind of lost me because I remember just like staring at like that and wondering why why is this why has this been made? I watched Hearts War when it came out. I remember thinking it was fine, but that's yeah. exactly how it looks. I suppose it's, loads of it's, it's average, much less fine movies get made nowadays you know what i mean that's true well this i mean it has to be completely exploitative of a genre or completely magnificent with a billion dollars behind it well that you know i think that probably leads into even talking about s s craig zahler because his films are i mean we've got genre films that i think he would get he'd be struggling to get these made without making them himself that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let me just say, yeah, okay, let's let's get into it about old S. Craigie Zeller, because this man really stems the tide. There's no other way to put it. Um, I have read one of his screenplays, the screenplays that I think set him on the road to selling screenplays, which is what he does with much of his time. He's written read, 21 screenplays, I believe. He's written an awful lot, yeah. I read the one that kind of um, put him on the map, on the blacklist. Uh, It's called The Brigands of Rattleborg. It's a real gnarly kind of a Western. Not quite so gnarly as Bone Tomahawk, let's say. But, I mean, this guy, you just need to have a flicker over his Wikipedia page. He's a bit of a polymath, I think is the word. I mean, in terms of artistic endeavors, in that Jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah. Writes novels, uh, writes screenplays, directs them, scores the films. And uh, he's he's also in a metal band. He's the drummer he's in, and vocalist he was in, he was of in a metal two band. metal bands. He's basically, I I feel like he's this the natural successor to John Carpenter with a little bit of Abel Ferreira mixed in for good measure mm. or bad measure, depending on where you stand. I feel like he is first and foremost a fan of many things, and he just actively tries to subvert genres. Which is what Carpenter made a career out of essentially doing. And Abel Ferreira a little bit as well before he just said, nah, fuck it, I'm just going to do odd movies forever now. Have you listened to any interview or read any interviews with Salar? Uh, yeah, I listened to an interview with him a few years ago on Scroobius Pip's podcast. Ah, and I also okay. watched um, uh, an interview with him sitting beside a terrifying Vince Vaughn about <laughs> yeah. dragged across uh, concrete. Yeah, I, I, I watched uh, a few of those as well. Uh, yeah, it's just it, because, what, I mean, he, he makes a point of saying that, like, the reason he chooses to do these different genre films is because otherwise he would get bored. Mm. So I think well, that's why he's he's like, I don't want to be tied into one genre. I want to rotate a little bit. I want to see what's interesting to me. I would say, just a blanket statement from the get-go, and let's see how, do you agree with me on this? I would say 
that having watched all three of his movies in the last week, I think it would be a minor miracle if he ever gets anything made again. Really? You don't think he's going to get another film made? Uh, like, have you seen the his box office gross? But it's but that's I mean it's his company that's producing these films. Yeah, I know, but they don't make any money. As a but matter of fact, they, they, they lose. They don't make money theatrically. Mm. But I don't think they're designed to make money theatrically. They're designed to make money on VOD and streaming. But well, that I is can't true that... find any. I can't find any data on how much money they've made. Only I mean, this theatrically, is, like... and you're right. The theatrical gross is shocking. Oh, it's 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 unfathomable, like how he would gather money for a project. The only thing I can think that he might be doing would be because he does act. He is the kind of director who attracts names. People would want to work with him, like people once wanted to work with Nicholas Finding Refn, because it's interesting. Kurt Russell first got involved with him because he read one of his books and then heard he wanted to um, make a film, he, uh, Rates of the Broken Land. But just themselves, the 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 films, they're such. Odd. You can't cram them in anywhere, and there's stuff that I love across all of them. But um, yeah, I, like unless he's using the, you know, the. Have you heard of the Steven Soderbergh model that he invented for Magic Mike? I believe. Is that you having semi-naked men dancing around? That's it. Semi-naked. That is a good plan. It's just it's making it plan. like. It's yes. The idea was to make many many straight men into gay men, and then sell tank tops. I'll buy one. Uh, exactly. You've seen Magic Mike. No, the Magic Mike model was uh, that he basically put the movie in profit before it uh, even started, before it spent a cent. There could be something similar going on here. That wouldn't surprise me. So just basically set up all the distribution sales and completely got rid of the movie, essentially, before it started shooting. Lined up cast, crew, everything before a dime was sent and have had everybody sign on the line before they started it. So that way, once the movie started production, it was technically speaking already making money. And he's continued to use it since and other people have used it as well. So it might be that that uh, Zaller is doing because I, <laughs> I can't fathom how he'd be getting these films made otherwise. But that said, and we'll start into them right now, I would also say it's because having watched them in chronological, chronological order, the order he made them in, um, they go, in my mind, from the most commercial to uh, the least commercial, and I can't um, fathom what he might do next. I, uh, How do you feel I about that? Wa- I also watched them in in the the order that they were made. This is the first time that I broke I broke my rules of uh, I didn't choose the the winning I didn't watch the winning film first. I watched them in the order they were made, and yeah, I I agree with you. They become less commercial. There's a, I think we we'll, we'll talk about them individually. It's probably easier mm-hmm. to <laughs> to see where they land. Well, I'll get started. So with. 2015's Bone Tomahawk, a film which I saw in the cinema initially, and um, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it this time around, because I don't know how you reacted to it, having seeing it for the first time, but I was just fairly ill-prepared for it, because it's, it, it, it's all over the place tone-wise, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just it's completely, completely unpredictable. So it's a 2015... I'm going to cram all the genres I see in it here. Western horror comedy. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, kind of exists very much on its own terms. So it's about it's basically about Kurt Russell leading a posse off into the wilderness 
to rescue two people who have been kidnapped by cannibal Native Americans. So far, so good? That is an accurate summary. Okay, cool. So we open up in the 1890s, I think it says in the opening, and we've got David Arquette and another fellow who basically are like two fellas out of the Glanton gang from Blood Meridian. Have you ever read Blood Meridian? No, uh, it's, it's on my list. It's really good. Um, and the, but if you've seen the opening of Bone Tomahawk, why bother, Andy, is what okay. I'm saying. Why bother? So it opens with quite, uh, well, I don't know. I watched this with headphones on. So yeah, for me, me it was, yeah, yeah. It's quite a gnarly sound design in the opening. You just hear throats being caught. I, I think that's something across all three of these uh, Zahler films is you can hear just bone crunching, like the sickening sound of uh, the violence is very visceral. And I think the sound design plays a large part in that. He's got a kind of a focus on grossing you out with the sound design across the three films. Mm. I think it's fair to say. Anyway, so we open up with these boys out in the middle of nowhere and they trot across a burial ground. And um, yeah, then they, the, we just about see David Arquette's character running away as his mate in the background with the bad teeth. We just see him basically getting his guts ripped out. And it has the first of the film's lines that I took the pains to write down just because I thought it was fantastic. When the not David Arquette character says to David Arquette, this is not the time for womanly imaginings. <laughs> I quite enjoyed that. Okay, then next up we're introduced to Patrick Wilson's character who is in bed with a broken leg and married to the most beautiful lady in the world. Did you recognize so her? Uh, yeah, she's from Banshee. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, she's the daughter from Banshee. I've been watching Banshee's follow-up show, uh, War- Warrior. Um, oh, I didn't know that was one. Well, yeah, same. It's, <laughs> it's the pointless violence and, you know, coolness of Banshee, just with <laughs> Irish versus Chinese instead of general small-town violence. That's, she w- that's she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't the first choice for this wife role for Patrick Wilson's wife role, Lily Simmons. Oh, do tell. Well, the original first choice was uh, the lady who's in the other two films, Jennifer Carpenter. Huh? But she dropped out for some reason. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> Which would <laughs> Maybe have made Jennifer more, Carpenter a bit more sense uh, age-wise yeah. because Lily Simmons even now is something like twenty-five. And also, she's just too beautiful for how horrific this world is Mm, yeah i mean she's just like unrealistic hot like anyway we're introduced to her and patrick wilson and then next thing we are introduced to matthew fox's character john bruder in the local bar the local bar which is called the learned goat okay so then we're introduced to matthew fox's character in the bar who's made to pay the piano player so next up then we're introduced to kurt russell's character who is the the sheriff franklin hunt and richard jenkins character chicory who's the first uh, backup deputy and who is basically a uh, stumpy from rio bravo i don't know if you've seen rio bravo but that's 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 who Chiggery is, and yeah, there were. <laughs> he's got the best lines in the film. I think we can definitely. Agree. Richard, the stars of this film for me in terms of uh, best performances are Richard Jenkins and surprisingly Matthew Fox, who is yeah, brilliant. absolutely. Matthew Fox is great. In Ma- this. Matthew Fox in his final film role. 
Really? Yeah, he retired, basically retired from acting. So this film came out in 2015, and he hasn't done anything since then at all. Oh, I didn't realize that. He's also semi-canceled as well, though, because he got into trouble for uh, allegedly hitting a female bus driver. What's his name? Who was in Lost, the Hobbit from Lost? Dominic Monaghan called him, said mm-hmm. he was a woman beater, accused Matthew Fox of being a, a lady beater. And uh, I think since then, Matthew Fox has hasn't worked again but i don't know if it's his choice or whether people are just not hiring him but based off this and how good he is in this it's kind of surprising yeah he's got like he does he's got a kind of a manic intensity going you know yeah but i can also imagine that of course the lead in lost would go a little bit mad because it'd be for me it'd be like you know being in u2 it was something that was seemingly so universally loved and Mm. hated it, it, it how <laughs> how could you not gain a little bit of a complex from it yeah anyway um yeah it, it, the stars of the show are definitely richard jenkins and matthew fox and i would say even more so richard jenkins jenkins is it's very just, funny he is yeah like the first line in it that um made me laugh was uh yeah, himself and Kurt Russell are sitting down. Kurt Russell gives him a bit of soup, which Kurt Russell tells him not to wait, wait until it cools. He subsequently <laughs> takes a big slurp, spits a bunch of it on the floor and says, this tastes like corn. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, consistently hilarious, to be honest. So we've got we've pretty much got everybody introduced at this point and then um we get to see a, a mildly gratuitous uh, sex scene between uh lily Sim- lily simmons and patrick wilson where uh you know he she's on top because he's got a broken leg etc 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 life going on as normal in the town is is um, having a broken leg in this time period like a death sentence close enough seems to be a very serious problem i mean you know you'd be amputating i'd imagine but that said i'm not a physician (laughs) at all but i like yeah i i don't see what they would do with it beyond that because you often in western lore let's say you'd often see guys with prosthetic legs for this reason you know Mm. they're basically like horses you break it and that's it so then Anyway, we've got, we're back in the bar and David Arquette's character, Purvis, I believe his name is, wanders back into town and Chicory tells Franklin Hunt, the sheriff, that he saw this character outside town burying a rucksack rather suspiciously and that they should go head down to the local bar and um, sort of check it out. And then they pop into the bar. David Arquette does not want his business being fooled around with. Uh, get another great chicory line here where he says, uh, it's like a tree fell on you. Redwood, uh, which I thought was a good line. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then we get, we get uh, the kind of scene that I love in a Western, which is just a no hesitation shooting which with no build up and no slow motion which is when David Arquette's character tries to make off and Kurt Russell just just shoots him straight in the knee and I would uh, argue get... that that is how all violence is meted out across all of Zahler's films it's it's quick it's without thinking people are just executed or shot or injured in a mm. second I will say with I would make an exception with uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99, which is, I think, just all build-up, basically. Even though the violence does happen suddenly and it's delivered suddenly, I think, like, 
you you gradually baited to be expecting more and more violence. But anyway, that's how Purvis ends up in the jailhouse, and uh, John Bruder, Matthew Fox's character, has to pop on down to Patrick Wilson's house, the the O'Dwyers, to fetch Samantha, who seems to who we learn is the doctor's assistant. The doctor being drunk, Bruder has to bring Samantha down to the jailhouse. He is warned by Arthur not to make any flirtations upon his wife on the journey down and then they bugger off down to the jailhouse where she has to fix up Purvis's character even though he'll likely be be hanged um, soon enough which is what we learn from Franklin Hunt then Franklin Hunt makes his way home we see him with his loving wife who appears to be a sickly woman and uh, that is kind of it for the night except then in the middle and of the night is, and that's about a good 40 minutes into a runtime of 132 minutes. All of uh, Zahler's films are over two hours. Yeah, and they take their time as well. Mm. There's there's really really no rushing going on here. The story is you can you can tell he's a he's a novelist. Yes, well, especially knowing knowing he's a novelist makes sense when watching these films. Yeah, it would be more so about it because mm-hmm. they're, they're structured like that and they're mm-hmm. paced like that. Yeah. Um, next thing we know, we're in the middle of the night and we see. A uh, black stable boy who just hears a mournful kind of a horn sound, almost like a didgeridoo. Is that fair? Can you think of anything closer to the sound the engines make? Uh, the troglodytes? Uh, no. Mm, okay, didgeridoo it is. So we hear the troglodyte didgeridoo for probably the first time in the film, or at least first time as a recognizable calling card. And then the stable boy pops out to see what looks like, kind of like an, somebody in the dark sucking one of the horse's dicks. <laughs> um, I wasn't paying that much attention to what it looked like. But then we get our first kind of taster, just a taster mind of the violence that is to come. We don't quite see the, the stable boy done away with, but we certainly hear it. And then we see a slow zoom in on the jailhouse and all of a sudden it's the next morning. So Chicory comes to comes to Franklin's house to tell him that there's nobody in the jailhouse. Everybody's missing. And they find the jailhouse empty, and Franklin Hunt has to go along and inform Arthur of the news because, of course, his wife uh, Samantha was there in the jailhouse with the other first deputy, Nick, um, and everybody's gone missing: Purvis, Nick, and Samantha. So then everybody in the town gathers up in the Learned Goat Bar. And I think this scene is just like, it's just with little bits of writing and little bits of dialogue over the course of the film up until this point, but certainly all in this bar that you just get to know with a line or two, everybody's status within the town. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, to- you totally know the dynamic of everything that's going on. Then we're introduced they- to the professor, right? Yeah, the professor who I don't know. Have Zan, you watched Dan McLarnan? Have you watched um, the Fargo television series? Yeah, is he in season? He, he features quite heavily in season two. Yeah, he's also in Westworld as well as Akachito, the uh, chief. Oh yeah, yeah, he's the the uh, almost the Jesus of Westworld in a way. You know, uh, he's, he's also we, in, we, he's also in Doctor Sleep. Still yet to see Doctor Sleep. Watch it. Okay, fair enough. I, I think I think the purpose of his character here is to very clearly say, "Hey, those guys, the bad guys in the film, they're they're not Native Americans. They're something else. <laughs> they're a yeah. cannibalistic troglodyte clan. Okay, it's okay for us to go out and murder them. 
They are they yeah, are yeah. not like us. They are not they are not natives. You you can go and kill these people and not feel bad about it. And you can enjoy this as a horror film and not feel yes. bad about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're not these it, these are not humans that you're killing. I mean, it doesn't entirely succeed. I don't think it really <laughs> needs to. Where's it like you, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's it's an interesting scene to be honest because, you know, it tells us a little bit about them. But yeah, for example, we, did we, you see, it, did, it know that we know that we should be scared of them. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it might people might perceive it as offensive, but it's like I mean, it's no secret that frontier life was was kind of horrific and really dangerous. Did you see the Coen Brothers um, anthology film from a few years ago? No, I still haven't. I still haven't watched that. What's it called? I mean, it's Bust, really good. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That's it. It's really good. One of the sequences in that just features a terrifying sequence of a wagon train being attacked by by Native Americans. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that you know, with so many promises broken with regards to land acts and so forth in America, you know, it would be <laughs> honestly embarrassing if the Native Americans weren't transformed into some sort of a monstrous entity. Like, not all of them, certainly, but I mean, the likes of the Comanche really yeah. excelled out in the frontier just with absolute brutal savagery, which mm -hmm. was met in return. That's pretty much what Blood Meridian is about is just uh, the, disintegra the disintegration of the frontier into just hell, essentially. But yeah, that's that's the the purpose of the professor in that. I think that's completely fair to say. Um, in he, he, what do you think of the um, the mayor and his wife in this scene? So the mayor is portrayed as having zero power. Uh, his wife is kind of shown to be making all the decisions. But I don't know. I didn't. It didn't really have any lasting impact on me. Mm. There's any? Yeah. No. It's just it, it, like it's another way of establishing status in the town, I suppose, because you kind of see Franklin Hunt's sort of open defiance of the mayor, and he, you know, gives little of a shit of of what he thinks. After then the, the learned goat, we get our kind of, the various characters say their goodbyes. An interesting one for me is that you get to, to see Hunt be given, make a pack for himself with a bunch of cheese and bread and sausage, which, I don't know, I read a lot of fantasy books and you always hear of people doing this before they make a journey, just bundling up some cheese. So it was interesting for me actually to see that done in a film quite quite a nerdy inclusion of a moment in the film but again i think it kind of plays back to what a nerd i think zeller is i think the reason that all of these films have such long run times is because of scenes like that and the same in brawl and cell block 99 there's a long section where vince vaughn is entering prison for the first time and mm. it just it goes through each of the individual parts of breaking down this is what would happen and then yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in the third film, uh, we've got a scene where Vince Vaughn is eating for one minute, <laughs> sitting in a car. <laughs> so it's just that Zahler enjoys showing the kind of mm. the individual detail, minutiae kind of broken down. I think he enjoys playing with your expectations yeah, as well. as well. Certainly definitely. in Brawl and Cell Block 99, which, I mean, we're not going to discuss in detail, no, so no. I'll just say, reference this scene out right now, um, the, where he is going to meet his prison guidance counsellor, for right. want of a better word, and he's told that she's got, like, a big set of cans, and then, oh, you, you know, you open the door and, you, you know, she's wearing a a blazer buttoned up to her neck and i don't know what that was meant to be maybe it's supposed to stress like how starved for women 
uh, inmates are or something like that. But it was just such a, a odd moment. In I think the, a lot of film. it. I think Zeller tries to set up like this is how he feels his characters talk. And mm. this is what these these are the conversations that he feels his characters would have. We'll talk about that more when we get to dragged across concrete, no doubt, because it probably it feels it's more relevant to discuss that in a modern setting. It doesn't really matter in Bone Tomahawk yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's in cowboy times. Yeah, Bone Tomahawk does a, a a little bit of an effort in um, bringing to life actual Western speak, which mm. um, on an interesting detour. I don't know if you seen have you seen the Sisters Brothers? No, that's with the one with Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley. John C. Ah, okay. Riz yeah, Ahmed and Jake Gyllenhaal. It's right. quite a cast. It was um, Jacques Oyel's uh, first English language film. The director of A Prophet. Oh, okay. and uh, a book that my heart skipped. But anyway, um, no, it's it's a it's an interesting book, and the film does the same thing because the book is basically people spoke English in a manner like they were educated off of grammar books back then, because you know, I mean, they wouldn't have had quite the society that we have nowadays to be educated by just listening to people or television or things like that. So they had a very direct, highly grammatical way of speaking, which you hear a little bit of here. But it's massive in the Sisters Brothers, and it's just interesting to the ear. I feel um, like Zaller's dialogue works better in this time period as opposed to in a more modern setting at times. Mm, it brought well, itself like 99 was fine. Didn't bother me, but mm. some of the dialogue, the dialogue and dragged across concrete uh, really stood out to me as mm, what it wasn't great. Mm. We next get our uh, first campfire scene where um, um, Matthew Fox's character, Bruder, um, puts a line of bells around the campfire and declares that he's going to shoot first at anybody um, who, like, if they hear it, it's either going to be an animal or uh, somebody who's got bad intentions, um, which I really, really does turn out to be the case. Um, we've also then got, uh, on a side note, as they go to sleep, Chicory wondering how you could ever read a book in a bath. Which is just I like I I love it like <laughs> absolutely love it. I I think his films are just uncompromising in the most odd ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think the it's best. Like, I mean the best sections of this film, in my opinion, are those four actors: Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, and Richard Jenkins spending mm. time together on the journey of going from their town to where mm. these cave dwelling troglodytes live i mean those sections where like you say they're around the camp they're having conversations uh matthew mm. fox is shooting people yeah know. it's uh what you mean those that's are the best sections those are that's that's westerns essentially yeah. i mean uh rio bravo i know you have i really really strongly recommend right, you watch I'll that um but uh th like the finest sections of that are not the action and the action is good it's the banter in the jailhouse between um dean martin and john wayne and stumpy um and it, like yeah it's that it's that kind of thing that you're looking for and you get you get good doses of it here as well in the next night i think patrick wilson's arthur wanders far from the camp to try and um dose himself with opium or fix his leg or something but he comes back and he finds finds that uh the guys have uh, rifled through his possessions because essentially he's riding with a broken leg. It looks like agony. I don't know if you ever he had a broken his, leg or anything like that. He has like a it. broken leg, but he also has like a, he has a wound on it that won't stop bleeding. 
Yeah, because he's got, well, he's got a, a shattered tibia, I think is what is referred to. Yeah, yeah, it's just absolutely nuts. Anyway, so then we, they basically, they, they take the opium off him and they just say, look, you can't ride with opium. You'll fall asleep in your horse. Horse, keep up with us while you can. Of course, horses will soon not be a concern of them, of theirs, because the next night when they hear the bells ring and two fellas are about to uh, cross into the circle of the bells, two Mexican guys, um, it doesn't matter where they're from. Essentially, after just a little bit of back and forth dialogue, uh, Bruder shoots them both dead. Um, he's kind of scorned by um, by Hunt for this, as well as Chicory. But it turns out in the end it was the right call because seemingly the uh, members of the same gang come back and relieve them of their horses. Uh, there's a really nice scene there where Bruder says something racist fair fair enough but he, he says that he wouldn't um his horse would not allow one of uh, the mexicans to ride uh, to ride her and it turns out to be true and they end up he ends up having to put his horse out of out of its misery which is a sad old scene for him the way that matthew fox's character works is we see him and we think he's overzealous and we think He's being he's he's going over the top and he mm. seems overly brutal, etc. But I think after a short period of t- period of time, you realize like, oh, wait, this guy's he's a hundred percent right. But I, mm. it probably feeds into some of the the arguments about this film being right wing, the other two films being right wing, and Zaller being quite uh, right of center because Bruder. Yeah. <laughs> Bruder is shown to be like he's has zero compassion, but it's ultimately the right choice. But like it's such a like stuff like this to me is such a blind eye to history because I mean, and I'm a big fan of westerns. I've re- even read a lot about the West, watched documentaries about it. But like life out in these places was horrific, and not just for Native Americans. Mormons used to massacre people. That, that is no joke. Mormons were, like, ferocious back in the day for kidnapping women and slaying people. Mm. You know what I mean? These were really, really were tough times. And, yeah, I suppose uh, Matthew Fox is kind of representing that. And the other three characters seem to vaguely be funneling the, the modern views a little bit. But... Um, yeah, it, as it turns out in the end, Matthew Fox's character is, is dead on. And you are waiting for something to pop with him and Arthur O'Dwyer. And you don't, you don't really, you don't get disappointed in that. Because once the, the horses are, um, they're relieved of the horses, basically what they have to do is walk way far ahead of Arthur who's limping behind with his broken leg and his crutch. They have to walk way far ahead of him and just eventually he'll catch up. They'll leave trails for him. And it's just, you really, really feel the misery in this part of the movie. It's tough going. Like It's tough going for everybody, but obviously for Arthur O'Dwyer more than the, uh, idea the rest of them. They're, like, they're about 100 miles or more away from their town at this point. They have no houses, no horses. They've got limited supplies. Uh, Patrick Wilson has a broken leg. Uh, it just it. <laughs> I would just give up at that point. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have gone. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I would have just said, "Sorry, Lily Simmons, you're done." And Deputy Nick, we don't really care about him, so goodbye. 
No, nobody cares about Tech. Well, I mean, he does get some love from the natives in a, in a small does. while, but um, that's neither here nor there for the minute. Um, Patrick Wilson doing loads of work to catch up with them. So he is, I suppose, it's fair to say, understandably narky. <laughs> I, w- I was thinking about Patrick Wilson agreeing to do this film as an actor, a film where you have to walk around with a crutch and just act as though you're in kind of horrific Agony. pain the entire time. It did mm. kind of tip its hand as to where the ending was going. Only f- when I thought about it from like a meta perspective of thinking, this actor must have signed, there, there must be a happy ending for this character. Because I just mm. didn't feel like he would sign on to a project where he was essentially just being tortured the entire time and it was going to end badly. I feel like, I mean, all the deaths are pretty much in the post. And mm. who's going to live is pretty much in the post. I think that's fair mm. to say. Oh, even though had I watched, um, had I watched Brawl and Cell Block 99 <laughs> yes. first, I might have been in doubt of this. I would have been expecting everyone to die horribly in that case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I th- like I, I, I feel it's sewn up nicely in that regard. But I feel like as well, Arthur having a broken leg is just a, a great dramatic conceit like it's a great setup him constantly catching up with them and them like pretty much getting up and getting ready to go and he's just about getting yeah. in there for a rest it's just interesting dr- uh, dramatically because then actually when they're leaving and they're going to leave him to have some more rest Bruder says to him referring to an earlier warning that if we get to the if we get to the troglodyte cave before you do i'll try and not make any flirtations towards your wife when so then wilson goes to swing for him of course and just messes up his legs something <laughs> awful and that kind of completely puts him out of the running they have a chicory of all people perform surgery on him and uh, they leave him with a little bit of opium and some supplies and they have to bugger off and leave him alone they, ju- they, they just have to at that point and he's pretty much just left to go sleepies in the middle of the desert which is hard going and it looks like he passes out for quite some time as well Mm. so then (laughs) actually and then another uh nice chicory line just immediately afterwards uh when bruder says to chicory how he just keeps going and going and going like that old timer chicory just goes i just keep looking forward and pretend i'm a pack mule (laughs) I just thought it was, I just thought it was great stuff as well. It kind of reminded me of like when I was in, I was in Colombia. Uh, we were walking, to, we were hiking over three days to this city in the middle of the jungle, and it started raining, and it was horrific and really difficult. And I just pretended I was in Vietnam <laughs> or a Vietnam movie is more what I mean. Yeah. A Vietnam movie, probably not actually You're just in living Vietnam. in your fantasy world. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff can get you through. But I mean, <laughs> Chicory's fantasy is. Being a pack mule. Another line he has near enough to that is Arthur is apologizing for having punched Bruder and Chicory remarks. I thought it made things interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Just hilarious too. But anyway, it's just around this time that they get within distance of the cave. Now, the cave is the one, um, is the one ropey effect in the entire movie it's clearly just a cgi hole in the side of a mountain but it didn't stand out to me that didn't bother me no no it didn't bother me at all i didn't notice that that was cgi ah i wasn't paying that much attention i guess to it was just i was like okay there's a cave it would have bothered me about as much as your man falling from the building in in point blank (laughs) that bothered you know i noticed it (laughs) 
Did that bother you a lot? Yeah, because as we talked <laughs> about at the time, it, it was like a sheet yeah. of paper falling from the top of a building. I do think this was basically just like a whole stock on the side of that mountain. But Fair as enough. I said, didn't I really to go bother back me and too much. Didn't really bother me too much. So then they they see that from a distance and they go on the approach. Immediately, Bruder gets paid with a few arrows. Now, we've just learned a couple of scenes ago in dialogue that his real hatred for Native Americans comes from his um, mother and sister having been murdered by them. And um, he also says that he's like killed over a hundred, a hundred of them at some point or another. So there he is. He he kind of resigns himself to the fact that he's dying, asks for a cigar to be lit up for him. And uh, they leave him with all the dynamite that they've brought along. And, you know, he's going to go out, go out in, in style, so to speak. But ultimately he doesn't because they, the troglodytes just sneak up on him and murder him horrifically with the titular bone tomahawk mm-hmm. in the face he gets a bone tomahawk in the face but hunt and chicory don't really make it much further uh, they get into a scuffle just under the mountain as well with the troglodytes uh, which gets a little bit bloody but then they are subdued and kept alive the reason f- which we learn soon enough is that they just <laughs> these uh, this tribe seems to be in the habit of keeping people alive and then eating them. That's exactly Yay. it. I feel like all the stuff that takes place in the cave is maybe the weakest of the film. Go for on. Me. Well, that's probably the part of the film that I enjoyed the least. I mean, we come upon so they find that Samantha and the deputy Nick are still alive, and. Um, I don't know. Just the the fact, even the fact that the the wife character is still alive and seems to be in quite good health, <laughs> and still looking smashing. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem very realistic. Yeah, that's true. Well, but then see, again, it's not supposed to be realistic. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening, Jennifer Carpenter. But there you go. Jennifer Carpenter just always looks a bit stressed. It would have, so, she would have fit yeah. in that scene way better yeah, 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 than this yeah, yeah. kind of angelic beauty who was probably about twenty one certain... when they filmed it. Like it's a you 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 don't because men aren't um, you know uh, historically sexualized so much you rarely run into this problem with male actors, um, but like with with uh, female actors, like I would have an eye out for ladies that just look realistic, look like actual ladies in films. Like Laura Linney, I think is a really successful actress for that because you know I mean Laura Linney is a pretty lady, but she also looks like you know she could live down the street from you, you know. <laughs> So they witness um, Nick be dragged out of the cage in which he's being held in the cave, stripped naked, scalped, and then cut in half while alive through his arsehole <laughs> and <laughs> eaten. It is fairly uh, disgusting. I think all three films have similar body horror, though. Yeah, I would say this is the worst of the three. Yeah, I think having someone chopped down the middle, arse first. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've seen that in a film before. And, you, and, like, and I feel like it's something I would recall. I don't know how they did it either. I think they actually did it to the actor. Actually, <laughs> I haven't seen him in anything else since this. So. Evan Yonigkeit died in 2014 in the filming of this, of, uh, of this film. <laughs> I mean, they give him a nice, um, generous package. If you only see it from behind, it does look like he has a 
a big dick and balls. Which is, <laughs> Do you think which they is, gave him that? Or was, uh, well, it, or, I think, or, or, or was it God that gave him that? Who knows? I think it was a concession that maybe... Because, I mean, it must have been done with a <laughs> prosthetic, you do, right? please give me a large penis. <laughs> and don't skimp on the balls either. <laughs> Written into his contract. Uh, <laughs> Imagine he signed up for this film. He was like, you know, they were like, "Hey, you're only in it for a few minutes," and he's like, ah, "I'm not sure, but but we we'll just wait. We do chop you in half down the middle, and everyone gets to see your splayed I mean, open arsehole." And he's like, "All right, <laughs> Sign you will me up. get I'm amongst son of the a most bitch, memorable deaths ever in." Yeah. It's a budget, a, a budget of $1.8 million, so he probably got paid about $25 to be chopped <laughs> in half. Yeah, I, that's He's just doing it for the to, love of the game. To, to dwell on, yeah, I mean, that, like, $1.8 million is, I mean, this it's looks insane. good for $1.8 min, yeah, million, doesn't it? Absolutely. Like, it, the town and everything, it looks really, really good. He got all um, these people on board who must have just been getting paid scale, like yeah, or very strength of the script. I mean, yeah. my understanding is Kurt Russell sought him right. out after having read that book. This is what I, I heard in the interview with on um, Scroobius Pips podcast, which is is good interview, worth listening to. And I'll put it in the links. He says, um, yeah, that uh, Kurt Russell kind of sought him out, having been a fan of. Um, Rates of the Broken Land, uh, one of his one of his novels. Um, anyway, yeah, so we get to see uh, Deputy Nick be just cut in half, and then Chicory Hunt and Samantha concoct a plan to um, poison the uh, troglodytes with um, tincture of opium, playing on a little, you know, a trope of uh, Native Americans in that you know they they just can't resist the liquor. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's literally kind of what they're playing on. So it shows Hunt kind of pretending to be, because it's in a whiskey flask, swabbing back some whiskey, and then they spot it, and they're like, oh, I'll have some of that, if you don't mind. And this is, it, uh, the reason I'm going into such detail is because it leads up to uh, Chicory's best line in the film, I, I think, which is that they, they drink it, they spit it out, they're like, oh, it's disgusting. And Chicory says, uh, well, it's got to taste better than people, at least. <laughs> But I'm actually not doing it justice there because I'm delivering it like like it was a quippy line. But all of Chicory's lines are throwaway lines. Yeah. They're, none of them sound quippy or like a punchline or anything. Anyway, in the meantime, when they're trying to poison them, so they're trying to figure out how many of them are left in the cave, the troglodytes, how many they might have poisoned. But all the while outside, Patrick Wilson is making his merry way through them. He manages to rip out the throat of one of them in another grotesque sequence uh, to figure out that they've got these kind of horns in their necks. They have like a whistle, a whistle sewn into their throats. Just which is just intensely grotesque, uh, but then he begins to use it to make signals to the troglodytes. They come out, he shoots them one by one. Basically, you know, I mean, he is a cautious gamer in this. I'd say he approaches the, ca- the cave like a <laughs> That's cautious exactly gamer. That's exactly how I play yeah, most games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a distra- distraction here and shoot them there. Exactly. Um, as he gets closer and closer, we learn then from Samantha that uh, there are two uh, pregnant women who they have uh, blinded and mutated, who don't worry, we'll get to see them before the end of the film. But then eventually, uh, 
Arthur manages to make his way into the cave, but not before the troglodytes have figured out that Hunt tried to poison them. They pull him out. It turns into a kind of a one-on-one sort of a brawl, but then they, they cut Hunt open with the bone tomahawk of the title and shove the heated up whiskey flask into his wound, which is just <laughs> bizarre grotesqueness. It's just, it's just bizarre because then... As uh, Chicory, as Chicory, Samantha and Arthur managed to make their uh, way away, um, Chicory has an emotional goodbye with with Hunt. I actually think the relationship between Hunt and Chicory is played very nicely throughout the whole film because Hunt clearly is keeping him around because he feels sorry for the old man because Chicory is about as useless as two left feet most of the time except when performing surgery, apparently. They have a little bit of an emotional (laughs) goodbye and then Hunt is left to fight the remaining troglodytes with a whiskey flask sticking out of the gaping wound in his stomach. Uh, it's a mad way to go, but this is, this is exactly how he goes. Um, yeah, then next up, we ba- we see the guy. We don't actually see them make their way back from town. We get to see them sort of make their way away from the mountain with the cave in it in the distance. They hear Hunt's final shots let off, and then Arthur wa- has to wash his mouth out with water before he gets to smooch his wife samantha lily simmons the most beautiful woman alive again because also he seems to be walking like he seems to be walking uh fairly normally at this point Mm, maybe they under directed that point of the film i suppose (laughs) it's it's possible as soon as he meets Um, his wife he's suddenly kind of like oh my broken leg doesn't bother me anymore yeah i mean they've got a lot of way to go before they get back to town you know, it's who about, knows? It's did positive, they make it? It's about well, I think the ending suggests that everything is fine. It's all fine. Mm, wouldn't be so sure. I mean, okay. Well, they get a, they get away anyway. They get away in the end, and that kind of winds up the film. And uh, I enjoyed it much, much more this time around. I have to say, I don't know. Do I completely agree with you? The like, well, actually, I enjoyed the whole film. Maybe you're right. Maybe I would have enjoyed the sequence in the cave the least, but I still enjoyed it. I like a bit of gore, and that <clears> delivers on the fine. gore. It was fine. I just think it was the least, I don't know, the least interesting part mm. to me. But you enjoyed it in general. Yeah, I did. I mean, the first time I tried to watch this film, I made it about 20 minutes, and I think I fell asleep. And I think it's quite slow. I think you need to get into the mindset for a Zahler film. You need to accept that it is a bit more like a visual novel in some ways. I mean, mm. any other any other filmmaker would have made this in 90 minutes and not 132. For sure. And I think of all of his films in this one, you could acknowledge it would have been the lesser film for that. Yeah, it's strange now because we'll get to dragged across concrete soon enough. But it's like because I watched that just last night with my girlfriend, and uh, she wouldn't necessarily lean too heavily into those sort of tastes. But I like managed to find good Spanish subtitles for it, so we said, "Okay, go ahead." And uh, she said, <laughs> the, the way, "She said the way to describe it is." It's exactly how I watch Zeller's movies. She says, "I mean, it's kind of boring, but it's you. It's interesting." Yeah. Which I suppose, yeah, that's kind of what he, he, he does achieve like a novel sort of energy for his films. Yeah, that's, I mean, the pacing is a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah, and I've heard him nowadays, acknowledge that in interviews. Especially in the modern world, I just don't think we're accustomed to 
someone expecting that much from us as a viewer of like, hey, listen, mm. you need to sit here for this length of time. And nowadays it's hard for most people to pay attention for more than 30 seconds. So it's asking yeah, all a the, lot. All the good graces of, uh, like, of that kind of filmmaking are now only expected of a TV audience. And at that yeah. only occasionally, only when David Simon is writing the show. <laughs> Maybe. But then again, uh, that means that this type of film works better in your house because you know you can pause it if you want. And I did mm. pause these films. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I paused them uh, every 30 minutes or so. I broke them down into little 30-minute chunks and then I was like, you know what? I wonder what Richard Jenkins is doing these days. <laughs> and did those kind of little, little diversions to entertain my brain. What is Richard Jenkins doing these days? That was a bad example because I don't know. He's still alive. I know. That's the good news. Do you know, do you know what David Arquette is doing these days? Uh, he's probably got a podcast or something. Let me guess. Well, he's he being a to? mentalist, first of all. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen David Arquette uh, interviewed, but he is just a mentalist. I do remember um, that he was a controversial figure, like most of the Arquettes. It, well, in an interesting way, uh, a mentalist, though. You see, he's trying to go back to wrestling. I don't know if you ever heard of what his... Yeah, uh, I remember he was involved in wrestling. Yeah, didn't he make a film about it as well at some point? Well, that's what he, he's released a documentary about him trying to get back into wrestling because he was unanimously hated by the wrestling community because the wrestling community are a thorny bunch, as thorny a bunch as you'll come across. And he basically, like, they the whole time have celebrities guest in the WCW and the WWF. John, uh, like, uh, Donald Trump uh, hit a fellow with a chair uh, in a Royal Rumble one time, for example. But with David Arquette in WCW, they let it go much further than it had ever gone before. And he made a few jokey appearances. And then all of a sudden, he was the champion, the the world wrestling champion with WCW. And he was loathed for that. Like, he was real, in a, real. Yes, the film he made in 2000, Ready to Rumble, is about the WCW as well. Is that a documentary or no, a no, fictional? No, no, it's, a, it's a, a, a comedy, a buddy comedy. With him and Scott Kahn. Oh, not so bad. David Arquette well, was actually also probably in really the, bad. David Arquette was also in the film that I that probably most reminds me of Bone Tomahawk, and that's Ravenous. Ravenous. I don't believe I've the seen one Ravenous. with Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle. It's a, a western from 1999. It's got a great soundtrack by uh, Michael Nyman and David Al uh, uh, Damon Alburn. Uh, Is it good? Yeah, it's a good film. I enjoy it. It's about cannibals and uh, in the Mexican American War. Hang on a minute now. I mean, that just sounds really similar to this. God damn you. Yeah. It's yeah. Craig Zaller, if that is your real name. Um, was this your, how, did this, how does this rank in his filmography for you? I probably enjoyed it the most. But it's, for me, it's between this and Brawl and Cell Block 99. I don't know which one I prefer. Maybe Brawl, maybe Brawl and Cell Block 99. But Dragged Across Concrete is definitely number three. Yeah, yeah, for me too. Um, so we'll have a quick shoot over uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 for getting to that, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, that is a really interesting film. How in the hell did that get made? Let's see if we can sum it up in 30 seconds. Vince Vaughn is just a big, huge guy with a cross tattooed, a bald guy with a cross tattooed on the back of his head. He has a steady job, which he loses, so he starts working with a friend of his moving crystal meth. Uh, until he gets arrested when and during the process of getting arrested he kills uh, a mexican uh like drug dealer associate guy 
and uh, wounds another one. So he gets sent to prison. When he's in prison, the big Mexican boss man that he kind of pissed off uh, tells him that he needs to go to a more secure prison to murder someone in cell block 99. So he beats up a bunch of guards in the lower security prison, gets transferred to the, the big kind of serious prison, makes his way to cell block 99 and finds out that the guy that he's supposed to kill, Christopher Bridge, doesn't actually exist and it's the Mexican crime lord who's there. And then he just basically ends up in a, a massive fight, kills a bunch of people, kills the Mexican crime lord before getting shot to pieces by Don Johnson. I end. could sum it up much quicker than that. Yeah, it's that. Vince Vaughn <laughs> kills a lot of people. Well, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. I I'm a big fan a lot of, it. of the, um, uh, just the general original concept of that show, which was, well, all the characters are horrible. Yeah. So if we have that set up, then we can say and do as much offensive stuff as we like. Well, basically, you've got that set up with Brawl in Cell Block 99, whereas, it, but instead of offensive jokes and actions, you've got absolute brutal violence. Yeah. Like he has to start prison fights to save his unborn <laughs> child. The one his the first fight or one of the first fights that he gets into with the black guard in the in the medium uh oh. security prison like the guard is just he's saying to him like you know I was just kind of razzing you because I wanted you to like join the boxing team <laughs> and then Vince Vaughn just kicks the shit out of him and breaks his arm but it's it's played in a way where you're like oh God, you know he has you know why he has to has to be violent but you're just kind of going like oh no I can't believe you're doing this to this guy he's a good guy mm. and you're I mean to it's smash his arm to pieces it's uh, the setup for it is just so unbelievably typical it's almost like they're making fun of setups guy gets home from being fired finds wife having an affair. Uh, yeah, beats up a car, beats up a car. Uh, but, I mean, it's a completely unique film. I've never seen anything like it. This is the second time I've seen it, and it only got crazier for me. The violence, in the, he uses a similar shooting effect in this and in Dragged uh, as well, of when someone is shot, their head kind of, the, the bullets kind of explode the flesh. Mm. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an interesting uh, way of shooting. It's it's kind of like a it's like a sort of horror film thing. It's actually quite funny. <laughs> yeah, Just seeing you, someone when, being when you can to yeah. pieces by this like gun. But once the whole concept of it starts, I mean, once all the horrific pieces go into place, and you've got like a Korean abortion specialist standing by to give his unborn child an especially nasty abortion. Well, it's not even uh, that. He's going to cut off the its arms, arms off, of, yeah. off of the unborn fetus. So then yeah, it's, it's, it's like a video game setup. So then like every <laughs> time you see, you see like, uh, so like, for example, when he arrives in the uh, maximum security prison, you see all the pr the prison guards, and you can you could pick out of a lineup which one he's going to do the most horrific damage to. <laughs> then, when he first arrives in, initially I th just thought he was just going to start laying into the guy who was friendly to him. But then you see all the uh, Mexican lads over on the w in the weight bench, and you just you immediately know, oh, he's going to use weights to beat up the Mexicans. That's what's happening next, you know. 
that whole um, fight the- scene is interesting because Vince Vaughn's kind of moves slowly, mm. but he punches with this this kind of brutal force. Even though Brawl moves at a similar pace to um, Zaller's, uh, like other films, like you know, it's, it's slow and jaunty. Minutes again, just the the violence is so brutal when it actually and actually once the violence sort of starts and once the your the concept is delivered to you it just kind of becomes sort of funny because it's all it so is funny. fucking it ludicrous is, it is, it, some of the I violence think is is hilarious it's set up in a it's a kind of like grindhouse type film i mean it is mm. supposed to be funny oh yeah 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 for sure like when when you've got like random asian man in the final cell in cell block 99 who proceeds to get his face trod on and then the flesh dragged off his skull. And just in case we don't realize that's happening, that's the thing. Like, he does, Zeller like, does, he does, that, he does, does that thing he with gore. He does a curb stomp into the, into the prison floor. J- Zaller does that thing with gore, which is kind of like what the Farley brothers do in, in something about Mary when the dick gets caught in the zipper. Yeah. And you're kind of comfortable because you're like, oh, the dick got caught in the zipper. That's what happened. No way in a million years do you think they're going to show it. And then yeah. they just show you, you the show balls. You the ball. <laughs> and in, in the exact same with this, you see that Asian guy get dragged across and you're like, okay, that's grim. Then Vince Vaughn fucking flips him over <laughs> and you see, see the front of his off. skull. And oh then s- similarly, at the, the, at the end of the film, the Mexican drug lord gets his head stomped into this open hole toilet and Vince Vaughn uh, stamps on his head so hard his head comes off and falls down into the toilet. And then the two other uh, uh, pisses de resistance of gore in it would be the jaw stomp, which just, to be fair, just shatters oh, like... like uh, and then... Yeah, Vince Vaughn himself when his prosthetic his, his, head gets exploded. Gets up, yeah. Oh, it's a mad movie. And then, but as soon as he gets shot, his head just explodes and then it cuts to the credits. <laughs> this is just so funny. It's um, a great cut. Do you know how much money <laughs> Brawl and Cell Block 99 made? Yeah, because I'm looking at the figure right now. $64,000, $64,453 box office. Good God. I, I mean, must, I hope they sold that popular. to somebody. It must have been quite popular on VOD. There's no way that it didn't make a bunch of money just streaming. You think? Or, yeah, streaming or rentals, I guarantee. Because all of these, I mean, again, the the the, the, the line of thinking about uh, Zaller that he's, I don't know, the, I'm sure Zaller is viewed by a lot of people as like, he's a Nazi. I feel like. Why do they think that? Because I have to say now, well, this is a perfect we, lead we, into Dragged yeah, Across exactly. Concrete. I think we can deal with that in Dragged Across Concrete because... But this is a perfect lead into it because I, having heard, listened to a bunch of reviews for uh, Dragged across, across Concrete when it initially came out, I was prepared for something much worse than what I got. Well, there's one scene in particular which I think spells it out of, which, of why people hold the views that they do about his films. But all right, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it anyway. Let's so, do it. Yeah, Dragged Across Concrete is S. Craig Zahler's third film. It's described as a neo-noir action thriller starring Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Zahler wrote the script before production started on Brawl and Cell Block 99. Um, all of Zahler's films so far have been two hours plus, and this one is no exception, clocking in at a beefy 159 minutes. 
Dear Jesus, I mean... It's a long, long time. That's two hours, right. 39 minutes. So we'll start at this from the off then. This is way too long. Of all of his films, this would really benefit from being tight and 90, I yeah, would because say. Because this is another, like, more than 20 minutes longer than his other films. Almost half an hour longer than his other films. And less happens yes. than in either of the other ones. Uh, his idea behind this film was to replicate something more in line with his novel writing, hence why the pacing and characterization is slightly unorthodox. Mm. Uh, budget on this one was $15 million. Jesus Christ. $15 million. Where's that money? I don't know. Uh, Vince Vaughn and uh, Mel Gibson's pockets, possibly. I don't know. Now, I, I'm a fan of both of those guys uh, i know but i doubt either of those got paid that much for this I no mean, M- mel gibson is i mean is he still in movie jail uh, yes and no he'll 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 never quite live down those messages to his like ex-wife saw ridge kind of got him out a little bit mm. um he's doing things like dragged across concrete all of his films look similar to that yeah you've Anything got anything that i've come father. across yeah like fat man i don't know if you saw anything of that i haven't watched it i've seen the trailer i haven't watched it yet but it's got walton goggins in it too and those are two mel gibson and walton goggins (laughs) should be game set match for me to be honest i love both those guys yeah so yeah do do you know what the theatrical gross was on this one oh something disgustingly small go on 660 dollars off a 15 million budget yeah like how do you come back from that well i'm surprised it was even shown theatrically I just don't know who would go and see this in a cinema. But who gave the money? This is what I'm saying. This is just madness. Well, then again, I mean, this is the thing, though. He has his own company. It's called Intrepid Films, I think. No, Cine State, sorry. He's, he has this company. Uh, there's this guy, his uh, producer, Dallas Saunier, um, who I think they're, they're, they're based in Dallas as well. But this guy is called Dallas Saunier. That's his name. And um, I don't know where the funding comes from, but the films that they're making are all the S. Craig Zeller ones. They also uh, produced a film called The Standoff at Sparrow Creek by, by, good. Henry, by Henry Dunham. And it all seems like it's this type of stuff, like this kind of grind, grindhousey stuff. They also own Fangoria, the magazine. The horror magazine. Yeah, they purchased that within the last couple of years. Yeah, because I, I that was actually closed down and then restarted. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I heard Zaller had something to do with that. He writes for it quite actively as well. They I mean, also, he is a movie a movie fan above all. I would say they also they also publish Zaller's books, uh, his recent books. Uh, this year, or rather last year in twenty twenty, he released a graphic novel um, as well. But so yeah, called the forbidden forbidden surgeries of the hideous Doctor Divinus, which is, is supposedly quite good. Has been well received. Um, so yeah, I don't know where the, this funding is coming from, but Dragged Across, Across Concrete got a simultaneous theatrical and video on demand release from Summit Entertainment. So I assume they were just thinking like, you know what, we'll make this, we'll make some money on, on home media. Before we d- d- get into it, I would just like to make one more general observation, which is that we've talked about quite a bit um, how, you know, I mean, Netflix movies might maybe could do with a few production notes and so forth. In most cases, it's because the concepts of the films generally aren't good and maybe they shouldn't have been made at all. I wouldn't say this at all for this. 
I think there's really good filmmaking in in here. Just the major issue is it's and it's unescapable is the length. It's just it's really difficult to to come to why this is so long, let alone how much it costs to make. I kind anyway. of don't mind it though with Salar's films. The fact that they're long, I just think, as I say, you just need to get into the mindset of like this is what he wants to do. It's going to be this length. Dragged Across Concrete is the one that probably suffers the most for pacing issues of feeling a little unbalanced or heavily unbalanced. Mm. But ultimately, when I think back on it, I kind of feel like, okay, there are elements that are not important particularly, but they're for reasons of character. But then again, there's a question that remains is like, how much do we really know or care about any of the characters? (laughs) This is it, yeah. They do, he tries to build in all these these elements that are supposed to reveal character, but they're still kind of stereotypes. They're, they're, they're stand-ins. They're, they don't mean anything. Like, there's a postscript in this film that, like, <laughs> I could give less of a fuck about. Yeah, I have a qu- Excuse I have my some questions about that for you. Uh, so anyway, to get into the plot, in the first 10 minutes of this film, we're introduced to the character of Henry Johns, played by Tori Kittles. A middle-aged black guy who has recently been released from prison. He goes back to his mother's house, chastises her for turning to prostitution, and then reunites with his disabled younger brother. I feel like in any other iteration of the story, all of this would be cut. Mm. Does any of that except the iteration where Zeller is trying to make a a novel on screen? Yeah, that's it. Because it's it does not fit into. I mean. The reason for this is because we're setting up Henry, who at the start we're going like, why do we care about him? But ultimately, he's really, he's the hero of the tale. Yeah. Uh, that becomes clear as we move forward. Anyway, three weeks later, we see detectives Brett Ridgman and Anthony Luracetti, that's Mel and Vince, carrying out a raid on a drug dealer called Vasquez. In the process of the raid, Ridgman is unnecessarily rough with a suspect uh, standing on his head on a metal fire escape. There is also a scene where uh, Vasquez's girlfriend, his deaf, uh, his deaf girlfriend, is kind of forced to stand uh, semi-nude with her hands over her boobies, while Vince and Mel kind of leer at her, <laughs> which feels like it's from the eighties. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels like it's you. from another time period. But anyway, back at the station, is, mm? is this the scene? Sorry for inter- is the, is is that the scene? To which you're referring? No, no, no. The now is the scene that I'm referring to. Okay, so back at the station, Ridgman and Luracetti get called into the boss's office, who's uh, Chief Calvert, played by Don Johnson. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there's a video of the bust forcing Calvert to suspend the pair for six weeks. Right, this is the scene that is often quoted in reviews and articles due to the fact that it contains lines such as... Uh, Don Don Johnson says, being branded a racist in today's public forum is like being accused of communism in the 50s. The entertainment industry formerly known as the news needs villains. And Vince Vaughn says sarcastically, there's certainly nothing hypocritical about the media handling every perceived intolerance with complete and utter intolerance. And, And I'm not racist. Every Martin Luther King Day, I order a dark roast. So... This has been highlighted in a lot of the negative articles about Zaller and about the film. So my question is, what do you make of this? Is this Zaller speaking? Is it the characters? Is it both? Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, like, that, like mine, uh, <laughs> my note for that scene is, like, uh, Zaller's position. Like, that's exactly, that's Zaller talking, as yeah. far as I can see. But, I mean, it's no, it seems to be, 
of all people in that scene, it seems to be no accident that you've got uh, (laughs) Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn together. Mad. Um, But like, personally, I think it's... See, I mean, that, it, I, it seems weird to describe Zeller as having huge balls when he makes the kind of films that he does, because that goes without saying. But this is like, because the thing is, I was, I was talking about this um, with a friend of mine just yesterday. I was saying, if anybody could get into a film, like how complicated the idea of like Irish travelers position within Irish culture is it would be amazing because it's such a touchy complex issue because there is discrimination going on but you can't take away from the fact that people have an awful awful like statistically far more negative experiences with the irish traveling community than good experiences with it hence it just becomes ineptly complex but here like so in in, but here, instead of trying to toe the line and maintain a balance, Zaller seems to just want to look it straight in the eye. Because here's the thing, I would be more worried about the scene that precedes it in terms of what it shows. Because, yeah, Mel Gibson's character does stand on a guy's head. And this was made two years before uh, mm. George Floyd That's was throttled point. to death. But, I mean, I feel like Zaller had him... There's no way Zaller is on... Um, Ridgeman's side when he does that. I don't think he is, personally. I think he's generally on the side of police, and that's kind of what... But for me, that's where it gets a little bit murky, is the fact that he is kind of... He's not necessarily on the side, certainly not with the way he shoots it, the way he shoots that scene, but he is the then the, the structure of the film would kind of set up, well, sure, this is what police have to deal with. And Vasquez, the guy whose head he stands on, certainly isn't shown to be a nice man of any sort. You know what I mean? So it does, Zaller kind of looks straight into the face of the murkiness of the issue, which is why it's strange for him in that next scene to take so unsubtle a position on it. Right. Yeah, I guess the the scene just, I mean, the scene of the, the conversation that they had in the boss's office, it just felt a bit cringy to me, but that's only because I know so much about those actors and their mm. and their lives that it just sounds funny coming from Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Because <laughs> it yeah. just it feels like a little too meta. If it was other actors, you could see it as the characters, but just seeing it as the actors, it just felt it just feels slightly slightly heavy handed. And I'm if you want very, meta, in very terms... far from woke. But even I was going, yeah, like, yeah. oh God. Myself and I, and all. But if yeah. you want to see meta in terms of Gibson, have you seen his film Get the Gringo? No. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's him. It's him in uh, rotting away in a Mexican prison that's basically like a walled city where all sorts of stuff goes on and you can just live, but essentially it's still sort of a prison. And the whole thing is just very much a metaphor for Hollywood as a sort of a jail for filmmaking of some sort. But it's ve- like it's very... Once you kind of realise what he's up to, it couldn't be much more on the nose. Right. You know? It's only slightly... It's only not as annoying as Darren Aronofsky's film Mother because Gibson is has got his tongue in his cheek a bit, but it is the least subtle metaphor you've ever seen. Anyway. Uh, oh, how old is Mel Gibson these days? Because he must be, he's playing younger than his age. He's 65 now. So he's playing younger than his age in this film. Are you a Gibson uh, fan? Um, He's fine. I, I've never really cared. I would say I like the films that he's directed more than the ones he starred in, generally. 
Including Lethal Weapon? I like the Lethal Weapon films fine, but again, it's not something that I revisit particularly. It's just fine. Uh, it's just Big fan. Big oh, fan really? over here. Okay, interesting. And of course, What Women Want. Well, that's a great film. Uh, I mean, obviously Braveheart. But then again, I would put that into his film directing rather than his acting. Well, his best film is is a film that he directed and did not star in. It's right. it's Passion Apocalypto. Of the Christ, I agree. <laughs> I haven't seen Passion of the Christ or Apocalypto. It's on my list. You haven't seen Apocalypto? I know, you, I know, I know. It's you lunatic! List. It's on oh, my well, list. Suggest it here someday, and I'll I lose will, the I coin toss on purpose. Okay, I'd be happy to. All right, great. I want to watch it. All I right. do want to watch it. Go anyway, on anyway. So uh, next, we see Ridgeman's daughter getting uh, harassed by a group of black youths. Uh, before heading home to her mother, a former cop suffering from MS, we see Luracetti going to buy a ring to propose to his girlfriend, and he's concerned about the fact that he's potentially losing his job because they've they've both been suspended for six weeks without pay. So mm. we've set up the stakes that both detectives have people they care about and need some cash monies. Uh, we're introduced to one of our bad guys who walks into a convenience store dressed all in black with a balaclava and goggles before shooting the clerk and a customer and stealing the cash. What did you make of the the bad guys? Uh, this is the this is the stupidest thing that we don't see their faces basically at all. This is the like okay. So why are they robbing a liquor store to get money to rent the van? But uh, yeah, I agree. But just, yes, I agree. It's he murders it's two stupid. people for probably a couple of a couple few hundred dollars, maybe. And I thought to myself, double murder. Yeah, I thought to myself, maybe they're trying to like set it up as a distraction but no this is a series of of robberies yeah and like they go from this to the gold bullion it's just i thought it was <laughs> dumb I, I, the, I the like, only thing they set up about these characters is that they are willing to commit brutal violence at the drop mm. of a hat they will execute people in a second yeah. and uh that plays an important role later on so yeah, Ridgman heads out to the local mall to to meet Friedrich Friedrich, played by uh, Udo Kier, who's in uh, Roland Cell Block ninety nine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man who owes him a favor. Friedrich gives Ridgman the name of a target, an out of towner called Lawrence Vogelman. Ridgman calls in Lurosetti and convinces him to help mm-hmm. uh, rip Vogelman off. They start a stakeout, and now the stakeout contains the the one minute scene of Vince Vaughn eating. Yeah, uh, which, which Gibson does. It, it, but stuff like that I'm fine with. Yeah, it personally. didn't bother me. Some of the dialogue around it was just a bit clunky, I felt. Oh, right, yeah. So, yeah, need to, first of all, anchovies. What oh, the hell God. is that? So something that's, yeah, so Vince Vaughn, whenever something is bad, he says anchovies. So it's like his swear word. It's something that they seem, I think they seeded it early on. They bring it in. It's related. They're talking about food quite a lot they're talking about breakfast and i think at mm. some point during the conversation he says something smells like anchovies and that's bad and then he keeps saying anchovies throughout the film that is extremely clunky that might work in a book another clunky thing is work. mel gibson being occasionally rain man-esque <laughs> and uh, naming percentages <laughs> yeah that's his we got a 25 percent that this is going to end in violence but if he goes yeah, outside d- that goes up to 29.8 percent didn't work. No, um, no. 
Definitely, didn't and, uh, work. yeah, didn't work. Definitely things didn't that work. didn't, things that did not work, yeah, those sort of clunky sort of dialogue yeah. tropes they tried to set up, the gangs preceding robberies, and I genuinely think with those two elements removed, you're already getting to me enjoying this film slightly more, despite mm. the fact that I did enjoy yeah, it a middle, a middle if amount. They, if they sorted out some of those, there's a couple of scenes later on. There's one with Henry and his best friend that where they're talking about their childhood and eating a cake. That has yeah. zero relevance to anything. Anyway, uh, the balaclavaed bad guy, or one of the balaclavaed bad guys, because there are two of them that we're, we're introduced to, so we don't know which one's which. They're referred to by their character names, which is one of them is called Black Gloves and one of them is called Grey Gloves, but I did not notice any difference in the color of their gloves, but apparently... No, they might gold. as well be uh, foot soldiers from yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they to be are, honest. They, they have that look about them, yeah. But no shredder or crang, unfortunately. <laughs> so one of the... A balaclavaed bad guy murders another two people in a car before using the money that they've uh, he had accumulated from these murders to rent an armored security van with airless tires. Uh, Vogelman hires Henry the guy we met at the start of the film, and his childhood friend Biscuit, played by Michael Jai White, old Spawn himself, as, uh, as drivers slash muscle. Ridgman mm. and Lurisetti follow all of these people <laughs> to an underground car park. <laughs> they drive out in a rented security van. The black drivers, Henry and Biscuit, are in white face makeup. <laughs> yeah, that's mad. <laughs> it looks like that film, White, uh, white Chicks. I genuinely couldn't for the longest time. I'll be honest. Until uh, this, until they started wiping the makeup off later in the film, I was unsure if I was seeing this correctly. <laughs> Honestly, it was bananas. I I thought it was brilliant. Uh, it's just so stupid. It has. Yeah, it's yeah. just so so ridiculous. So, but this part of the film, I have perfect time for it. Even the seemingly endless monotonous them tailing them around and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. I can watch that. Me I have too, no me issue too. with that. I think all of that is great. I think Zeller's really yeah. good at all those elements. I enjoy yeah, yeah, yeah. all the violence in his films and and in this film, yeah, like just anything that's like a stakeout or following clues, etc. I think he shoots that really well. I think he yeah, shoots yeah. his his tailing, etc. It's all it's all well done. Anyway, um, the next section of the film is is my favorite, I think, because <laughs> it's just isn't is just Zaller trolling the audience for the next ten minutes. And oh, Jennifer Carpenter. Jennifer Carpenter. I enjoyed. This oh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's so ridiculous. So we're introduced to Jennifer Carpenter as a new mother attempting to go back to work after finishing maternity leave. She has a panic attack boarding the bus and returns home to see her baby. Her partner talks her into leaving again to head to the bank where she works. When she arrives at the bank, the bank manager is is so pleased to see her. Her colleagues welcome her. They have a they have a cake and presents for her. Then the security van pulls up and blocks the door. Three balaclava guys with guns get out, playing their instructions on a tape recorder, which is brilliant. The idea that they yeah. have to press play. They need the the, the person's response must ha has to sync up perfectly with, yeah, what, yeah, they've, yeah, yeah. with what they've recorded uh, on their tape recorder. Um, they choose Jennifer Carpenter's character to put handcuffs on her colleagues. While she's cuffing a security guard, he tries to send an email to the police. She lunges to stop him, and one of the bad guys shoots her fingers off. 
With her bloody stumps, she holds up a baby's booty and asks, will you make sure my baby gets this? <laughs> Before her head is gunned to, gunned to pieces, Vince Vaughn style. Jesus, yeah. What was, how I did mean, you it, react to this part? Well, first of all, I thought, like, never mind in this type of movie, I've never actually seen something like that, like a, a new mother <laughs> getting separation anxiety from her child. I yeah. thought that was just really fascinating as yeah. a scene. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, th- I, I just thought I, I really dig Zeller's sense of humor. Yeah, with, I, uh, I mean, his... I just, I just, I, I burst out laughing. I just, I yeah, just yeah, couldn't yeah. stop laughing because it's just to fuck with the audience. There's no other reason. It, yeah, 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 yeah. It rem- like you know, um, when Jonah Hill says in Superbad, uh, "Oh, I know, I know, I know. Fuck me, right?" <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I felt, I felt like that. <laughs> Yeah. There's no you're right there's no other reason why it's there at all. It is funny though. It's mm. uh I, but it's it, it's also funny that I mean it seems like Jennifer Carpenter I saw a, a kind of red carpet interview with her and she said like wherever Zaller goes I go to like, I'll do any film. So it's just it's interesting to me that he got her on board to do this part <laughs> and she's like yeah no problem. Well, I'm sure it. she would have laughed her head off. Yeah yeah yeah. If she's like if she's into the Zellerverse, then, yeah, 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 yeah. She's a she's a, f- a fundamental element. Um, so the criminals escape in their van with a huge haul of gold, taking one of the bank staff as a hostage. Ridgman and Luricetti follow the van out to an industrial estate in the middle of nowhere. The final section of the film is basically a massive gunfight slash clusterfuck. Uh, Henry now worried that he and Biscuit will be killed. Uh, fires on the Balaclava guys. Biscuit is killed, but not before he swallows the key to the van. Uh, the bad guys Good have, God. To, have to cut open his stomach <laughs> to retrieve it in a scene that's slightly reminiscent of uh, the deputy Nick being chopped arse, arse first. Yeah, uh, it's one of those scenes you can smell, that scene. <laughs> Jesus, it's unpleasant. Yeah, it's all, again, it's the classic body horror. Uh, Ridgman and Luracetti start firing, firing on the van. The guys in the van send out the hostage with a gun. Under a threat to her family, she crawls over and shoots Luricetti before Ridgman executes her. Now, one thing I will say, um, I think the way Cheryl gets done in this film is just unnecessarily cruel for me. I found that really <laughs> unpleasant. Yeah, I... Um, like, why is she naked? That I thought that was just... She, oh, fucking... she was naked. I didn't... I mean, she well, has she's her, half naked. She's she's got her she's got no skirt on. She has her pants pulled down because in a st- earlier scene in the van, she needs to piss. So they and they shove a bunch of paper her, up yeah, her fanny. Yeah, yep, I shouldn't <laughs> so have said it like that, but that's literally is, what happens. It is, like, a, it is not the most respectful move. Um, uh, yeah, I yeah. I, I like, and I know, I know what they're going for. I, I know what, like, yeah, and I know what defense they would use. It's like when Spike Lee. It, accused Quentin Tarantino of using the N-word a little bit too enthusiastically in his films, and Quentin Tarantino said, yeah, well, people talk like this. And here Zahler would say, yeah, these are supposed to be your bad guys, but it's just, uh, it's quite nasty like It does, that. It, it reminds me of that, um, the kind of prologue or the, the what um, Bryce Dinellis has at the start of uh, American Psycho, which is, I think it's a quote from Dostoevsky or something. I can't remember exactly, but it basically says like it's arguing for the separation of the, of the author and the character, not to hold the, the writer responsible for the actions of a character. 
and to and mm. to separate and say i think we just basically braced and alice very clearly wanted to say hey i'm not going around murdering prostitutes so you know please don't hold this against me um but yeah. i think uh, zaller's films are all entirely that because he goes to great pains to say listen i'm i'm apolitical if anything i'm maybe slightly right of center i don't agree with what my characters are doing i'm just making these genre films and if you're offended, there's a, a good article I read by Scott Tobias. I'll link it in the in the show notes that he wrote for The Ringer, which is uh, titled "the the director who doesn't care what you think of his movies," which mm. uh, it goes into a bit of depth about Zaller and his process, and uh, I think it's worthwhile. I think ultimately that's what all of this is. Zaller does not really give a fuck what you think. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry to to tell you. Shit. So, so well, after uh, Ridgeman has killed uh, the hostage, Ridgeman then takes care of the other bad guys in the van until we're down to just him and Henry. Uh, they agree to share the gold. They start clearing up the dead bodies before Ridgeman pulls a gun on Henry, asking Henry to delete the video he took of Ridgeman killing the hostage. Henry mm. shoots Ridgeman and promises to take care of Ridgeman's wife and daughter. In the two final scenes, we see that Henry now lives in a lakeside mansion with his family. He gets to play some PlayStation with his uh, disabled brother. And we also see Ridgeman's wife and daughter opening a box of gold from Henry. And they're going to be okay. They're going to be fine. By the way, quick, this is a quick question to you, to you about this. What do you do with a box of gold? Oh, um, I... Take it to a We Buy Gold store. Is that what you just this like printed gold? No, I don't know. I was thinking about that. Gold is is quite clearly from a massive bank heist. No, no, I was thinking like I think about things like that all the time. Like how how people go about fencing things. Like, is there any other way to have bearer bonds other than to rob an armored car? You know, these (laughs) are the things I think (laughs) about. To rob an armored car in 1985. That's how you get bearer bonds. Yeah, I mean, how how do you even melt it down? Like what temperature would you need to go to somewhere? I assume you can't. An extremely just do it high stove, temperature, right? No, you can't no. just do it at home. Want to put a pan I, on? I genuinely like. I don't know. I like. I don't know how people approach things like this. Interestingly enough, as uh, somebody who we both know, you recall um, the fellow who used to own Cuevas in in Barcelona, Jack. Yep, hippie <laughs> Jack. Uh, he told he has he told me that he he has gold bars because ba- you know it shouldn't be no surprise to you Andy that he's the sort of person who doesn't believe in banks right uh, so he he has gold bars so he would be the person to ask not me okay we'll seek him out I don't know what I would do what would you do I don't know I guess I would um, how do you even I can understand Henry having an idea of what to do because he's a criminal so he, he mm-hmm. and he has links to a bunch of people so he can no doubt fence stuff. But this uh, Richmond's wife, who's a former cop, like I don't mm. know what that she just knows what to do. Maybe it's easier in the U.S. to. to I guess she could just go and take it somewhere, melt it, melt it down. Seems like work in a, in of of itself, though. Yeah, well, anyway, there's cash in the in the van as well. Anyway, uh, what's with the weird ending? I enjoyed the film well enough. It's not something I ever need to see again. Um, but it's and it's another interesting another interesting Zaller uh, mm. character piece. But um, yeah, I don't need to see it again. What do you make of the postscript, though? Is what I'm is what I'm asking. What do you mean? Just in terms of I mean, it, it's just Henry, an odd sequence, Henry, isn't Henry it? Henry being in the big mansion. Yeah, and then his mother getting a massage while looking at a lake. I it's guess just it a- just he wanted to point out it just. 
to tie back to the star of the film and be like, haha, so you thought the cops were the main characters, but it was Henry all along. He was the one that we were supposed to identify with, but you you saw him as a as a, as an ex con and therefore thought he was a baddie. But really he I've was heard the, it he described as a film about police brutality. It's not a film about police brutality. No, because they're the only point where they're acting as officers of the law is when he when Mel Gibson gets a bit rough with the drug dealer Vaz, Vazquez at the start. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a everything deconstruction else doing, of the heist movie, I'd say. Yeah, because everything else they're doing is acting as private citizens, uh, breaking the law, <laughs> just being criminals and trying to steal a bunch of gold. Yeah, try, I well, think Gibson is, start, is, is good rob, rob a drug dealer. That's their plan. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and Gibson's family get, get a bit of gold as well, which is nice, I suppose. Yeah, so they get taken care of, so they can move out of the neighborhood. Another thing that, that another criticism leveled against the film is that, so uh, Ridgeman's daughter, it's a group of black youths that are like kind of throw a drink at her while she's going by. Mm. But the, the ex-wife character is shown to be racist. And Ridgman, uh, Mel, Mel Gibson's character, doesn't say anything to argue against it. That's something that I've read. That Does she show herself to be racist? I believe so. I think she has a kind of like, look at what this neighborhood's becoming. They no, no, in. because they, uh, I believe That's they, I they had to... Well, no, because what she sort of says is, um, uh, I would have never considered myself like race racist or something but she said like basically and it's more so implied that they've had to they've fallen on hard times and that's why right. they had to move into this neighborhood rather than the neighborhood got bad oh, okay. um still yeah i think zahler is kind of <clears throat> again it's like i he just kind of decides to step into the murkiness for himself but i think like he's just deciding to i don't know kind of go with it would be the wiser thing to do in terms of a Hollywood career to not feature obvious, like his daughter obviously genuinely being assaulted <laughs> by black guys in a film where Mel Gibson is filmed being overly brutal. But then again, this was all two years before George Floyd. Another I mean, thing it, that was like this film is filmed in Vancouver and um, mm. it just doesn't look like the USA. It doesn't look like any American city. It's quite clear. I agree with you there. Yeah. 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 And I've never been to Canada, very, but very I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you there. That's like, they're like, um, you can spot that kind of stuff. Like, um, yeah, yeah. He's like, I, I, I don't know. You can, for example, films shot in LA and New York, you can just tell them sort of a mile away. Yeah. Atlanta Brawl, too. Um, Brawl in Cell Block 99 is filmed on Staten Island. Like almost everything is there. The two prisons and everything. The two prisons are what? Mm. Like luxury condos in Staten Island. <laughs> one, of them, uh, one of them is a military fort just under the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. So like the bridge that goes over to Brooklyn. Have you, uh, you've been to Staten Island, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think it deserves its reputation? I think it's fine. I think it's all right. Yeah, it's I can grand. understand why people don't like it, but I think it's fine. Yeah, bridge anyway. and tunnel and all that nonsense. Anyway. All that, all that jazz. Uh, number one, Craig Zeller film. For <clears> me, <throat> Bone Tomahawk. Two, I, Raw. Yeah. 
Three dragged. I'd have to say the same. I'd have to say that his films are getting progressively less good to me. Uh, and he's got nothing in the pipeline for the future. And as I said, I don't know why anybody would give him permission to make a movie ever. His films well, cost a lot and don't make money. He's. It, well, I just checked before while we were talking. It's not that he's written 21 scripts. He's sold 21 scripts. He had a bunch of things that, like, that haven't just haven't gone eventually. Films, a TV series all manner of things. So there is, there is potential that someone else could make one of his scripts, but it does also feel like he's maybe putting him, he's starting to position himself in a place where mainstream Hollywood might not want to touch any of any of his work. So he might have to get it done himself. And who knows there, I'm sure there are people out there that will, uh, you know, people with money who will love his work and are willing to finance him, even though they know yeah. they're onto a loser ultimately. I mean, yeah, it's like, that's the thing. It's like, despite the fact that I enjoyed these films, they're all just unfathomably uncommercial. Like, I I can't think of anything less commercial. And it's, like, you know, he's got a collection of big name actors working with him. It's mad. They're already kind of somewhere between R to X rated and... Then you need to be within a within that further niche of it. People who need to like perhaps ultra violence <laughs> or characters that are not nice. And then you would need to also just I don't know have a little generosity to your expense, uh, attention span rather. Yeah. All right. So yeah, a good week. Glad I got to see it. Yeah. I'm, won't I'm see, glad won't see it again. That's, that's S. Craig Zeller ticked off. Okay. Anyway. Shall we get into the toss? Let's toss it. So you my, got a coin, yeah? I do have a coin. I do indeed. Good, go for it. Would you Let's like to introduce know my film? You. So my film this time is uh, something that's quite shocking, perhaps, that I haven't seen. My pick is Mad Max 2, a.k.a. The Road Warrior. Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen all the other Mad Max films, but not since I was a kid. I'm actually definitely going to rewatch Mad Max and uh, Beyond Thunderdome, but... Uh, if I ever saw The Road Warrior, it's been, it's been completely overwritten in my brain since then. So uh, I'm probably going to watch all four films together when I get the chance and play the game on the PS4. Nice. I'm going full I, on Mad Max. I have watched all four Mad Max films. Uh, well, no, I watched, because uh, it's now 2021, I watched all four Mad Max films in the year of 2020, and I would have no problem watching the second one particularly again, because it is a doit, doit like a tiger, and the action is excellent, and I really, really enjoy it, and I'll be looking forward to chatting about it with you if you win, which statistically you're bound to. have to at some point. Uh, my film which I'm putting forward is one that I've had on my list for literally ever uh, pretty much since I uh, got into Peter Weir's films around the first when I watched uh, Master and Commander and went who the shitting hell directed this because I love it but I haven't seen this and it intrigues me because a woman plays a man and I believe won an Oscar for the role yeah yeah Exactly. Uh, Linda Hunt um, plays a Chinese-Australian man named uh, Billy Kwan and won an Oscar Mm. for the role. The film, of course, I'm referring to is 1982 romantic drama, The Year of Living Dangerously. I have not seen that. Also with Mel Gibson. So whatever happens, it's going to be two weeks of Mel Gibson because... Outstanding in a field. We must have a Mel Gibson film next week. It's, it's, It's inevitable. Hmm. I'm going to try and keep this going. Okay, so uh, would you, you? I have a two euro coin. Your options are two or man's bloated head. 
Uh, give me man's bloated head, please. Okay. Here we go. Oh, I dropped it. So okay, after go me again. Um, accusing you of being special. Unable. Yeah. Oh, it is man's bloated head. What? Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Well, I guess it's year of living dangerously then. Yeah. Well, that's good because I'll watch the Mad Max things in my own time anyway. Let me. So you tell know, me. Tell me what I could have won. Uh, what you could have won would have been John Frankenheimer's 1982 um, filming of an original Akira Kurosawa film starring John Voight, Runaway Train. Oh yeah, I've been meaning to watch that. Um, well, you okay. never can now. Well, here is what you have won. Um, I decided to go for another Peter Weir film that's been on my backlog for a long, long time. I've had this for a long time, and I haven't watched it. 1986's The Mosquito Coast with Harrison oh, cool. Ford and River Phoenix. I have not I've, seen I've, that I've, either. I've been planning Great. to watch it for a long time and have not got around to it. <laughs> Just like, uh, how interesting uh, f- filmmaker Peter Weir is, just by looking at his filmography, yeah, can like never Truman be over-exaggerated. Show. Like, yeah, the Way Back was another one that I was considering from 2010, um, the one with Colin Farrell and Ed Harris. The Way Back is very good. He's got a really odd film with Jeff Bridges called Fearless. Oh, Fearless, sure. That's the one with, yeah, with, with Rosie Perez being annoying. I, I recall that. That is just a, a really, really odd... Um, I like that. <laughs> I enjoyed that film um, in the 90s when I watched it last. Probably. He also has uh, Witness, Dead Poets That's Society, right. yeah. Gallipoli, Picnic yeah. at Hanging Rock, and one uh, genuinely one of my favourite films, uh, Master and Commander. I sure, just think yeah. it's Master and Commander a fantastic film. All right, cool beans. Well, um, until that auspicious occasion, I guess it's goodbye from us. Yes, goodbye. See you with Mel Gibson next time. Yay!